0: Hello and welcome to today's episode of Bookable Space. I'm your host Yvonne Battlefelton, and today we're joined by Nimby Cushing. Nimby will be reading to us from and talking about her book Come This Way, There Is An Exit. Nimby, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Oh, anytime. So can you please tell us a bit about the book? So the book is an offering of the life that I lived for a short time, but that was the life of my grandparents and my parents. It's about sharecroppers who live, it takes place in Tennessee, Western Tennessee, about between Memphis and Nashville, this very small town. I know it wasn't on the map when I was growing up. It might be by now because it has become incorporated and whatever, but everyone... All the Black people, anyway, or the majority of Black people, not not all Black people, who lived there were sharecroppers, meaning that we lived on land owned by someone else, white landowners, and we made our living by working in their fields, and whatever they deemed to say we had earned was what we got. But at the end of the year, when everything was tallied up, my grandfather very often didn't have what he thought he was going to have because we would have an account at the general store that through the year we could go in and get whatever we needed. And then that was matched against, you know, how much we had earned cultivating and gathering the crops. So I just felt like, first of all, I couldn't believe, even though I lived it, that that system existed well into the 60s. I, when I left Tennessee in nineteen sixty two people were still living that way, so I thought it would was an interesting interesting story to tell, and personal because of what it meant to me, what it meant to my family, what they were able to do, and what they were not able to do in very real kinds of things. Wow, could we please hear a bit from the book? I was thinking last night, absolutely, I had four brothers. And two sisters. And now there's just my sister and I left. We were the youngest. So my mother, I'm going to read a little bit about her, but I'll tell you that she was 36 years old when she died. And I say that she died of a broken heart. Hmm. She died in her sleep. She had had nine children by the time she was 36. Two of them died in infancy. So then there's the seven of us who were left. But all of my brothers are gone. Now, so I would like to read a little bit about my brothers. Jonathan and Landers got jobs in a shoeshine parlor when they first moved to St. Louis near the end of 1948. The man they worked for owned two parlors, one on Chestnut Street and the other at 619 North Broadway. Landers remembers both places in great detail. The parlor on Chestnut was in the hub of several businesses. We got lots of truckers as our customers because they stayed at either the Woodbine or the LaSalle Hotel, and they drank at the Hitching Post, a bar that had strippers. One of the bars had a pressing machine in the back room, and the strippers would go there to press their clothes before doing their dancing acts. Some of the drivers also used the pressing machine. It cost a quarter to press a pair of pants. All these places were within the same block. Back then, the biggest trucks were 10 wheelers and they had no sleeping compartment like the 18 wheelers today. So the drivers, who were all white, had no choice but to stay in cheap hotels if they wanted to rest up for the rest of their drive. We charged 10 cents to shine a pair of shoes and a quarter for boots. Sometimes a guy might tip a nickel, a dime, or even a quarter, but our weekly wages were $3. We caught the streetcar after school to get to the parlor and work from 4 p.m. until midnight Monday through Friday. The tips depended a lot on whether or not the customer had been drinking and how many times he called us boy or how many times we said yes, sir, or no, sir, to him. If they rubbed your head while you were doing the shine, that was a pretty good sign that you were going to get a tip of some kind. The parlor on Broadway was a JIP joint. It was centrally located between three bus stations, Greyhound, Trailways, and Gulfport. Most of the passengers on the buses were soldiers. Our boss knew that the customers coming to this particular parlor, which was really nothing more than a shine stand with space enough for the customer and the shine boy, those customers would probably not be coming back. So he had a gimmick called a dye combination. We could change a tan pair of shoes to dark brown or maroon by mixing a couple of polishes together. The soldiers liked the mahogany combination, but we didn't do a good job. We did not really get the back of the shoes polished like we did on the part that the soldier could see. We would ask when they sat down if they wanted a regular shine or the dye combination. After explaining the diet combinations, most customers chose that. When we finished and told them the price was a dollar twenty-five, some men wanted to fight, but we would just point to the sign with the price list and say, "Well, that's what you asked for, sir," and they would pay up. Of course, no coloreds were allowed to eat in the white restaurants, but the trailways bus station had a restaurant with two booths designated for colored the tables for whites had white tablecloths and napkins but the two booths for coloreds had faded oil cloths on them and this was up north st louis my brothers did these things to help our family survive the odd thing is that landers says we didn't think that they had it so bad but i do I think that they had it something awful, and on the night after my brother told me about his life as a shine boy, I wept in the safety of my bed. I cried enough tears, it seemed, to cleanse Jonathan and Landris's long, nimble fingers of all the polish stains accumulated over the afternoons and evenings that they worked in a bowed position for men many of whom thought them little more than pet animals. Why else would they have rubbed their heads while my brothers snapped their shoeshine rags? Landers explained it to me. Nimby, the white folks had a saying back then that we all knew. Rub a nigger's head and you will have good luck. While they would be seated above us and we would be down on the floor shining their shoes Some of the men rubbed our heads. They also told us jokes about colored people and waited for us to laugh with them. It was awful, but that's just how things were. So, my brothers, when they should have been home doing homework and having supper with our family, they were out working to help my father. With the dollar twenty-five an hour he was making, or a dollar and a nickel, I think. But everything went into one pot to help take care of all of us. I think it's so telling of how loving a family I had that that my brother could talk about this to me sixty years later and feel that they didn't have it so bad. You know, it was just the way things were, and. I'll read you one other passage, if I may. Of course. About the morning that my mother died. She was five months short of turning 37. It was four days before Christmas in 1950. Daddy and Uncle Joe had just returned the night before from attending the funeral of their oldest brother, Uncle Linkus, in Memphis, To suffer two tragic losses in so brief a time was unthinkable. So at first, my father must have thought, surely prayed, that it was a cruel dream. If he could only wake himself up, everything would be right again. But it wasn't a dream. And daddy's cry pierced the darkness throughout the apartment. Oh, Lord, this girl is dead. It was 4.15 in the morning. For everyone except my younger sister and me, my father's words had a force that transfixed them where they lay. Everything stopped. In the instant when their collective hearts resumed beating, chaos erupted like an angry volcano. The impact hit as five pairs of bare feet, Lorraine, Jonathan, Landers, Charles, and Edward bolted from their beds, and joined Daddy standing by Mama's bed. Lorraine and I slept together on a rollaway bed meant for one. Without thought, she pulled me into her arms, and we were at Mama's bedside in a flash. For a few seconds, Jonathan said there was complete silence. No one spoke. They looked from one to the other with eyes that pleaded, rebuttal of daddy's strange pronouncement, but none came. Mama died in the same bed that she had slept in for more than 18 years. Her eight-month-old daughter, Rosemarie and her uh, husband, Otis, were lying next to her. She had conceived, given birth, and nursed children in the familiar comfort of that bed. The night before, after saying her prayer, she had followed the usual routine of lying down between daddy and her youngest child. Mama was, as the Bible tells us, hemmed in behind and before. And in that small capsule of space, God gently laid his hand on her and carried her away. So when my sister told me about that morning. She said that she thought they would not be able to go on, that there was just no way the family could survive without mama being a part of it. But of course they did. You know, we had neighbors, kind neighbors. My father, when he migrated to St. Louis, because they had moved there just two years before from Tennessee, and he had gone there because a brother and a sister had gone before and said that this was a good place to come. So they weren't left totally alone. Aunt Gracie was there, Uncle Joe, and the friends that they had made as a result of being where they were. It was the location that Black people, especially those coming from up south, the apartments were, of course, should not have been probably even anyone living in them, but the living space that we had for my father, his wife and five children when they came was something that maybe two people should have been in, but they made somehow made that space work. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, like what your writing process was? I always feel that it's such a generous act for a writer to go through their life and their memories and and recollections and even the process of re-remembering something. Can you tell us what your process was like for the book? You know, Yvonne, I have never studied writing. I had written newspaper articles. If something moved me, I would write that way. But this story, I had been waiting for my brother, Jonathan, to tell it because he was a writer. But he never was going to do it. And so I thought... I started writing it as a part of being invited to participate in a special writing class that was taught at a, a women's college near where I live, St. Mary's College. They had been given a grant, and they brought this writer, uh, Sarah Umkansa. She came over from Swaziland, and so they offered this special course at this all-women's college, St. Mary's, predominantly white. And so they sent announcements into the community that they wanted women from the community. They specifically wanted women of color, but they wanted to have more of a, of a variety or diverse than they would have had just with the young women who attended the college. And so Sarah was going to have, we were going to write for six weeks and her theme was multicultural women telling their life stories. So that's, and the timing for me was perfect because my husband had died a tragic death several months before. And I was reeling from that, trying to get my balance. And I thought, well, this will be some focus. And so that started the process. And under her guidance, with her giving us specifics on, you know, how we went about that, if it's things that you don't know, and you're going to be interviewing people who do know your story, how to approach that. You know, she talked a lot about being a good listener. And actually, when the questions bubble up, try not to spurt them out all at once, but wait. And especially if you're talking to older people. Now I really know what she meant. <laughs> I'm one of those older people. But she said, you know, it's important to give them Their time to process and speak in the way that they would speak. So she talked to us about that. But probably left to my own, I would not have done it. It was just that the timing was right and the motivation was perfect. And it was a time span, you know, six weeks, you can do anything for six weeks. That's what I'm trying to tell myself now as I'm in this (laughs) water physical therapy stuff. You can do anything for six weeks. And so part of it was we had to. We met twice a week and we had to come with at least two pages that we had written in the day between we were meeting. And we, she didn't care about our editing it, but you had to be willing to read it. And the class was small enough. There were 18 of us and we met for two hours twice a week that each person would get a chance to read and we would talk about that. So she wasn't concerned about how well it was written, just that you were in that process of writing and willing to share it. Oh, that sounds really wonderful. Yeah, it was good. And there were, of course, the students, you know, all in their 18, 19-year-olds. And then there were people like myself who were all in our 50s, some 60s. There was one Fanny, I think Fanny might have been actually seventy. But so there was that breadth of age group and interest. And yeah, it was it was a good thing. Oh Very God. positive, positive moment. And it was winter time. So, you know, the days are much shorter at that time. So sitting and writing in the evening was relaxing and you know, something to do to get through the long night. I sometimes wrote Yvonne, sometimes I would right at two or three o'clock in the morning because I would wake up and if I weren't going to get back to sleep and especially since she said, don't worry about, you know, anything except getting words on the paper, that gave me a freedom to at two or three o'clock in the morning to make some notes and then maybe I would build on that a little later. But a lot of it came to me in the middle of the night, you know, after waking up from maybe a dream or maybe just not being able to sleep. Wow. Could we hear more from the book, please? Let's see. It's Christmas, almost. So I will read about first finding out that there was no Santa. At 12 years old, I was the last of my peers and maybe on the planet to learn the devastating news that Santa Claus was a fraud. For a few minutes, I think I actually hated Gloria and Ernestine Pittman for telling me the obvious. Ordinarily, they were my favorite friends of all. However, one summer afternoon while walking home from Mike Richmond's store, they revealed this truth. Rosemary and I had been permitted to accompany them on the three-mile journey. The walk to the store was easy. We would skip alongside the road and even do sprints if we wanted. We would talk about all sorts of things, like who had the larger breasts, a very short conversation. Sis and I, being the youngest, were not considered serious contestants. I doubt that Sis cared one whit about her body image, though she may have been envious of other aspects of our more mature friends. On the dreadful day when I learned the truth about Santa, we all had bags of groceries in our arms. Ernestine had just offered to lighten my load by taking a few of the cans from my bag and putting them into hers. She sensed that the bag might have been too heavy for me. The truth was that none of us should have been carrying 10-pound bags for (laughs) two miles. At the time, though, this was one of our favorite errands. It assured us of at least two hours without a grown up in the picture, giving us some less enjoyable job to do. So we were walking along Shelby Drive and had just passed the rather stately home of Mr. Symington, our white mailman. He always waved to us whether or not he stopped to put anything in our mailboxes. Ernestine was unusually sweet, except when pressed into a fight or when she had some piece of wisdom to share. How long had she sat on this grim news? Maybe months or even years. Steam, as we called her, probably believed that everyone beyond third grade knew the truth, and anyone who said otherwise was merely pretending in order to keep getting presents. May Rallis, she crooned like Patsy Cline, do you know who Santa Claus is? I thought maybe she had been in the sun too long asking such a stupid question. What did she mean? Of course, I had never visited Santa at the big department stores in Memphis, but none of us has. We all wrote to him and Big Mama mailed our letters. We never got all of the stuff we asked for, but we always got something from the list. How could I know the guy if I had to be in bed sound asleep in order for him to visit us? What do you mean, I asked her. She repeated her question. With that, I started explaining to her who Santa Claus was. I remember wondering how anyone her age with nine brothers and sisters could not know about Santa Claus. Her next words made me want to punch her hard in her face. Santa Claus is your mama and daddy, she said. I waited a moment. For raised voices of protest from the others, but nameless insects spying on us from the tall grass were the only sounds I heard. No one else, it seemed, was bold enough to speak. I opened my mouth, not sure what argument I could offer. That's a lie, Steam Pittman, I said, and you know it. Santa Claus is a fat man in a red suit. His picture is on the front of the Sears robot catalog every year. He brings presents to children, but only if we have been good. How does he do that, she taunted. Do you think he really comes down a chimney carrying a bag of toys on his back? I was about to scream at her that, of course, that was his method of delivery, but she did not give me the opportunity to do so. Her sweet demeanor had been transformed the instant I called her a liar. She took great satisfaction in reminding me that if, in fact, he got down the narrow chimney at our house, his efforts would land him square in the middle of our tin heater. I had no rebuttal. I looked to Gloria for support, but none came. She apparently agreed with her older sister. Something had gone terribly wrong with the whole scenario. Immediately, I realized that through the entire exchange, my sister had remained uncharacteristically quiet. She had not been shocked or even mildly surprised by the disastrous news that had ruined an otherwise sweet afternoon. I needed only to catch her eye to know that my sister, a year younger, also knew the truth. I suspected that our brother Edroy had told her the real deal sometime back and she had agreed never to breathe a word of it to me. Santa Claus. So twelve is, you know, I never could have lived in uh I don't know how. I think my grandpa well I know my grandparents they went to carried out every detail of it to have us believe. That there were Santa Claus because there was no, I mean, that was the big deal. We got gifts at Christmas. Our sister Lorraine when was a seamstress by nature, really. She did study in a technical school, but she sent us a new dress for Easter. And but Christmas was the big deal. And our grandparents, the house was so small. We lived in a four-room house. And my grandparents slept in the same room that we called the living room, but really there was, their bed was in there and a couple of chairs and a chest of drawers. But that's where at Christmas time, Big Mama, they would move her sewing machine out into the kitchen and the Christmas tree would go where the sewing machine had been. You know, one of those singer sewing machines that takes up quite a bit of room. So that's where the tree was. And we would go to bed at night. And of course, there was nothing there. and. I just bought it, hook, line, and sinker. And for Ernestine, when she told me that she was one of the, the sweetest people from my childhood, unlike my nemesis, Doris Jean, who used to beat me up, you know, whenever <laughs> she took a notion to do so. But coming from Ernestine, I knew when she said it, it was the truth. But I just did not want to accept it. For one thing, I didn't want to, I was embarrassed that I could have been so naive all that time. That walking along that road that day, even though I was not the youngest, my sister was the youngest. And no, I think Ernestine's sister had a sister who was with us, was younger than even me. And they all knew, Yvonne, they all knew. I just was outdone. I was just outdone. So I didn't talk to Ernestine for a while after that. Oh, no. No, I mean, I just, you know, because she had, oh, I talked to my grandparents. And, you know, of course, what could they do except to tell me, we thought you knew we were just going along with it because we didn't want to disappoint you or, you know, but we thought you were, we thought they had thought that for the last three or four Christmases, my surprise, my excitement was all a pretense (laughs) and it hadn't been. This happened during the middle of the week. By Sunday, Ernestine and I was talking to her because I had to sit next to her in church. And then after church, if we behaved, then we got to go and play in their yard, which was our favorite place to play. The Pittmans had 10 children. And so that was a softball team plus one. So Sunday afternoons there was a treat. So I couldn't stay angry with her for long. And we are still friends to this day. In fact, I'm going to see her next week. I'll be in Memphis for a funeral of a first cousin of mine. And I will I will visit with her too.